This morning we begin a new series on the book of First Timothy. Uh, it is a, so I'm going to ask you to turn there right now. Uh, it's a fitting time for us to begin this series. Uh, immediately following this service, we're going to be having a congregational meeting, uh, and we're going to be discussing um, the church, how the church is ordered, and what the church should be doing as we uh, look at our constitution. Um, also in our Sunday school hour at 10 o'clock, we've been going over the marks of a healthy church, what it means to be a healthy church, understanding what the church is, and what it means to be a member in the church, and how we should function as members in the church to the glory of God and for the good of all mankind. Um, Paul actually states the purpose for his writing this letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, here's what Paul says, giving the reason for why he is writing. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This book of 1 Timothy is a manual for church practice and order, if you will. And what we'll see as we go through this book over the next coming weeks and months is we'll see the importance of doctrine. <clears throat> Paul will hammer this over and over again. We will also see instructions on prayer. Uh, we'll see uh, instructions on the roles of men and women in the church. And we'll see that those are different roles that men and women have as they complement each other in the work of God. We'll see the various offices of the church, um, that of an elder and that of a deacon as well. We'll see who widows are and how widows should be treated. And then finally, we'll talk about money and finances and what our attitude should be towards these things. It is important to understand what the church is and how it functions because Satan is real. And Satan is alive and well and he is intent on destroying the church in any way that he can. And we need to guard against, we need to guard our doctrine and our practice in the church. Because God has chosen the church to be his primary vehicle to get his message of salvation out to the entire world. And that message of salvation is contained in the teachings of the church. If the church veers from the message of God, from the revealed word of God, then that message of salvation, it becomes so distorted that it is no longer the true message of salvation, and it has no power whatsoever to save. What we'll see in this study of 1 Timothy is that we'll have a lot of practical instructions about how we're to order our lives in the church. And my prayer is that we as a church as a whole and also as individuals would examine ourselves and to say, am I practicing these things that are laid forth in God's word? Remember that this word, this book, uh, that you have in your hands, whether it's on a phone or an actual book, um, is the very word of God. It is not the suggestions of God. It is not, it would be nice if you did these things. It is the, the word of God, the commands of God given to us for our good and for God's glory. So this morning is really just going to be an introductory uh, uh, sermon. We're not going to get into a lot of the details of the passage. We're going to give you an overview, uh, maybe a 30,000-foot overview of the book of 1 Timothy, what we'll be uh, looking at over the next coming weeks and months. Specifically today, we will look at the author, 
We'll look at the recipient, and we'll also look at the occasion, the reason for which uh, the author wrote this book. So uh, let me read this passage. I'm just going to read 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 3 as an introduction. This is the very word of God. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. We're going to end there. Let me pray uh, as we dive into this. Father, this is your word. Help me and help everyone in here to tremble at it. Today, Lord, we will see warnings. Warnings given to us for our good so that we don't veer away from you and your truth and end up in an eternal separation from you. And so we just pray, God. I pray that you would empower me. I pray that I would only say the words that you want me to say. I pray that uh, these words of warning would come actually as an encouragement to us, that they would make us vigilant uh, in this world, which is filled with deception. And we just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to begin just by orienting ourselves, just to give you a little bit of background. Um, uh, if you've been in Christian circles for any length of time, you've uh, uh, probably heard about this book, the Bible. It is one book, and it contains what are known as 66 other books. Now, that can be confusing because we think of books as longer, but some of the so-called books in the Bible are actually maybe only a couple hundred words. What, we will, what you need to know is that Paul wrote a lot of these books, um, and when he wrote them, they were mainly letters. They were letters to either churches in general or to individuals, okay? So we are going to actually be looking at the letter, a personal letter that he wrote to his good friend in the ministry, Timothy. And the reason it's included in the Bible is because it is the truth of God and it gives us the direction for how the church should be ordered. And so that's what we'll be looking at over the next couple of days and weeks. Now, a lot of us have gotten away from the... Um, uh, practice of actually handwriting letters uh, to people. We'll usually uh, type out emails or text messages. And, and the, the reason that we do this, the reason that we would send someone an email is either we want to connect with them. Hey, how are you doing? Haven't seen you in a while. Uh, just want to check in on you. Or uh, we want to uh, invite them to something. We want to uh, uh, tell them, uh, pass along some information. Hey, there's a party that's going to go on tonight or there's this event and we'd love, I'd love for, uh, to see you there. Or it might be a concern that you have with the person. You might say, hey, the other day you said this, and it really offended me, and I want to find out what exactly you meant. So there are many reasons to write these. Every letter that Paul wrote uh, in the Bible addresses a person or a church, and he wrote these letters to set certain things straight. Hey, I've noticed this. I heard about this, and here's what I want you to do to correct this situation. First Timothy is an example of this. Timothy, in the opening passage, the opening verses, is addressed as Paul's true child in the faith. You are my true child in the faith, meaning that Paul played a significant role in the spiritual development of Timothy. Paul and Timothy, if you read the pages of Scripture, were very, very close. 
We see this closeness in Paul's words uh, when he wrote a letter to the church in Philippi. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen. Uh, Paul writing to the church of Philippians is telling them about Timothy and his desire to send Timothy to them. He says this, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I, I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. And then he says this, but you know of his, that's Timothy's proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Paul refers to Timothy as a kindred spirit, right? And so there's a closeness that Paul and Timothy shared. I'm going to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 16, uh, verses 1 through 5, because here we see the initial meeting between Paul and Timothy, how they met. Um, the context of this is that the church was having some conflict. The church was just getting going, and then there were some people from the old school, Judaism, who were saying, yes, I buy into what you're saying, but it's not just believing in Jesus. You also have to follow the law in order to be saved. And so the question was, how is a person truly saved? How do they actually come into the family of God? Is it faith alone or is it faith plus works? Okay, and so in that context, uh, Paul, uh, after that, what's known as the Jerusalem Council, Paul meets with this young man by the name of Timothy. And so here's what it says in Acts 15, or 16. Paul came to also to Derbe and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well known uh, by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him. Now, you know you have to be close if you allow someone to circumcise you, okay? Um, so you know that Timothy and Paul were close. Uh, circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And let me just clarify just quickly. Circumcision doesn't save you. Paul didn't think that it saved you, but he was going to be taking Timothy into the synagogue with him, and no uncircumcised person could enter into the synagogue. That is what, why he was doing it, so that he could reach more people, okay? Uh, verse 4, and they went on their way through the cities. They delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So here's what we see going on. Paul and Timothy are going to the various cities and the churches, and they are saying, hey, this is the official teaching of the church. This is what you should believe. This is what was handed down by the apostles of Jesus himself. This is the teaching of the apostles. The apostles, if you don't know, simply means sent ones. These were the ones who were commissioned by Jesus directly to take his message into the world. They came with all of the authority of Jesus. They were empowered by his Holy Spirit with his message. He said that the Holy Spirit would call to your remembrance all the things that I have taught you. And so the apostles were, were to go there. In verse 1 of 1 Timothy 1, we see that Paul identifies himself as an authoritative apostle of Jesus by the command of God. Not by the suggestion, but by the command of God. Now this is important, and the reason that this is important because Timothy is going to receive a ton of opposi opposition, and people are going to say, what gives you the right 
to tell us what to do. Who gave you authority to do this? And so Timothy needs to be assured that he will be speaking in the authority of the Apostle Paul, who is speaking in the authority of God himself. And so why did Paul write this letter to Timothy? What was going on in Ephesus that uh, prompted the writing of this letter? And the answer is that a lot was going on in Ephesus. If you were to read the two letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, 1st and 2nd Timothy, you would see that Timothy was experiencing a lot of anxiety um, uh, as he was encountering false teachers which, will, which, which were infiltrating the church with their false doctrine. We know that he was anxious and experiencing these problems because of what Paul writes. And we're just going to do an overview just quickly going through First and Second Timothy. So if you want to follow along, we're going to start in First Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. We're not going to get into the details of this passage. I'm just going to show you why Paul is writing these things and the concerns that Timothy had. Um, in First Timothy 4:10, <coughs> Paul says this, For this end we toil and strive. That's all I'm going to read. These, this was a hard ministry. Paul is saying, hey, you are not called to just come and sit in a chair and listen and then just go out and do whatever you want. You're not called to even stand up and, 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 and preach a message and just walk away from it. This is a warfare. This is striving. This is tough duty. It was hard. In 1 Timothy 4.12, he says this to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth. Timothy was younger, and the people who he's going to come up against, those false teachers, were older, and in some cases probably smarter than him. And they would say, what gives you the right to tell us what to do? You're just a young kid. Who gives, what gives you the right to tell us that we're wrong? And so they would despise his youth and say, hey, grow up a little bit and then come back and maybe we'll listen to you then. In 1 Timothy 5, 23, he says this, no longer drink water only, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your, and your frequent ailments. We're not sure what was going on with Timothy. He had some stomach problems. It might have been anxiety that he was experiencing. And so Paul's saying, take a little bit of wine for your stomach's sake. Timothy was anxious. In 1 Timothy 6, 20, Paul says this, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble. Timothy, as a young man, would have been uh, tempted uh, to get into debates with others. Fruitless debates that were going to go nowhere. You're never going to convince them. And Paul's saying, hey, choose your battles wisely. There are some people who are just set up by Satan and they just want to confuse and just get under your skin. Avoid that. Don't even go after them. Don't even entertain them. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, moving into 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 Paul says this, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. There was a, seems to be a shame that was coming over Timothy about his testimony for the Lord. He was being shamed. And then he was associating with Paul, who at this point was in prison. And they're like, you're associating with that, you're the, aren't you the disciple of that jailbird, Paul? you know, that's been shelled by God, and there was a shame that was coming over Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2, 22, he says this, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Once again, he's saying, hey, Timothy, you are going to be tempted to, uh, to get into all of these debates with these people, 
and their useless discussions. Avoid that. I know the temptation is to try to prove them wrong, but you're not going to get anywhere with them. So you just point them out and say, this person is bad, right? And then you go on with your message. And then finally, in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, Paul says this, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And what he's saying is this, Timothy is bad right now, but it's only going to get worse. It is going to get increasingly harder. Timothy was called to a very difficult place in ministry. Christianity was still developing at this point, and the great enemy, Satan, would come and do anything to snuff it out before it got too big. And what I want to submit to you is that Satan is still in the business of trying to snuff out Christianity today. And he has two main strategies for doing this. His first strategy is to get people to completely deny the existence of God or Jesus straight up. You know, God doesn't even exist. Then he doesn't have to worry about anyone believing on Jesus. The other strategy, when he knows that he cannot convince people that there is no God, there's got to be something supernatural in the world, is to come in and to confuse people with religion, bringing about a bunch of ideas that are not true but really sound true. And this person had this experience. How can you deny that? This person had this experience. How can you deny that? And so he just brings in all of these things to confuse us because if he can distort the truth to where it's no longer detectable, then that truth, as I said before, cannot save. It has no power to reveal who the true God is and how you can be right with him. Paul warned of this in the book of Acts, and I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 20. This is very important background for the book of 1 Timothy as we get into it. In the book, in in, uh, the 20th chapter of Acts, beginning in verse 17, Paul calls the Ephesian elders to himself. He calls them uh, to meet with him for a final meeting with them. Paul had spent much time in the city of Ephesus caring for the church. He had initially spent three months there uh, preaching in the synagogues, trying to get the Jews to embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But then when he was not successful in that, he turned to the Gentiles, and he taught in this one school for a period of two years to anyone who would listen uh, to him. Later on, what we see is that there was a riot in the city of Ephesus because of Paul's teaching. Paul was teaching that there are no uh, other gods other than the true God. And there's this worship in the city of this, uh, of this goddess named Artemis. And her temple was there, one of the uh, uh, seven wonders of the great, uh, of the ancient worlds. And there was this guy, Demetrius, who was selling these silver statues of Artemis. And he stirred up the city and said, Paul is teaching against this. And they yelled out in the city, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, for over two hours. There was a riot and Paul had to be ripped out of there. Paul had a significant history in Ephesus. But he knew that he would never return after all of those years of labor in there. And so he called the leaders to the church to him. And in verse 17, here's what he says. Now from Miletus... He, that's Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house. Let me stop there for a second. Do you see the emphasis on teaching? 
It's teaching. People are saved by the word of God, by hearing the word of God. Faith comes from hearing and hearing a word about Christ. There is this emphasis on teaching. And what is the message that he is teaching? And, and notice, first of all, also, that he taught in public and he taught from house to house. He taught in a public arena and said, if you don't understand this, grab me and we can talk about it after so that you do understand this because nothing is more important. So what is the message? Well, verse 21 tells us, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, that's everyone, of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's an important message repentance, because the many so-called churches now are getting away from that message of repentance. You can just come to God, and you can bring all of your junk with you and keep all of your junk, all of your sins. You just need to add God to the mix. You just need to uh, just say a prayer, and you're good. There's no need to turn away from your sin. You can just jump in and keep all of your sin. The message is faith in Jesus and repentance, turning away. I was walking away from God, and now I'm turning, and I'm walking towards God, away from my sin. Now, verse 22, he says this, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. And then he talks about what's going to uh, happen, um, what he thinks is going to happen, but he talks about his faithful work among them. And in verse 27, he begins his warning. He says this, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, once again, I taught you everything that I knew. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. You can see Paul's urgency. You can see his heart and his love for these people. Paul knew that Satan, the great deceiver, was ready to pounce on them as soon as he walked out of their presence. As soon as he left them, he knew that Satan was ready to pounce on the church. And Satan's attack would come from the outside and from the inside. It would come from the outside in forms of persecution. People who didn't know Jesus, didn't care about Jesus, thought it was a, a big joke, and would persecute the people and threaten to kill them unless they renounced Jesus. And there were many martyrs in the first couple of centuries. That persecution, they were trying to drive them to deny the faith. And many, unfortunately, did. So he was successful. But also he said that they will come from the inside as well. These attacks will come from the inside by false teachers raising, uh, rising up who will use the terminology that you're familiar with, use religious terminology, talk about Jesus. But the message that they were proclaiming about Jesus was not the truth. And it was not the, the, the Jesus of the Bible that Paul was preaching Paul was right on. We know this because when we get to Timothy, Timothy is in Ephesus and Paul is addressing all of the very problems that he just said would happen there. And so he's leaving Timothy there to deal with these problems. Now the exact nature of these uh, false teachings is unknown, but glancing through the book, um, we can get some idea of what the message was. And I'm going to just 
give the, what the problem was. I'm just going to give these in general. We'll be talking about these over the next couple of weeks. And what you'll see is that this was not something that was just isolated in the first couple of centuries. It's something that is actually alive and well today. It just rears its head in a different form, but it's still the same stuff that it was back then. Um, so here's some of the elements. Uh, in this false teaching, there were Jewish elements, there were also Greek or Hellenistic elements, and there were also what are known as proto-Gnostic elements. I'll explain that in a second. The Jewish elements come in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. It says this of the false teachers, desiring to be teachers of the law. So they had an understanding of the law of Moses, and they were trying to explain that in a way that was contrary to sound doctrine. Also, there were elements of asceticism and dualism uh, present. I'll explain that in a second, too, which implied that there were Hellenistic or Greek influences here. Asceticism was the um, severe self-discipline, the avoidance of all forms of indulgence, uh, typically for religious purposes. And we see this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, when Paul says this, um, speaking of these false teachers as well, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. And these, what these people were saying is that I am more holy than you. I have a, a greater understanding. I am, uh, am closer to God because I deny myself this and this and this. I've denied myself sexual pleasure. I'm not going to get married so that I can be closer to God. I've denied myself eating this certain kind of food so that I can be closer to God. Once again, there's nothing wrong with that, but the way that they were propagating it is, is that they were better than anyone else. Also, part of the Hellenistic culture was this widespread superstition and magic, and much of these letters aimed at the dividing line between religion and superstition, as we'll see as we go through these over the next coming weeks. In addition to the Jewish and Greek influences, there was also what was known as a proto-Gnostic um, element as well. This was not full-blown Gnosticism that John would later deal with, but this was the beginning forms of Gnosticism. Well, what in the world is Gnosticism? Um, well, Gnosticism says that humans are divine souls that are trapped in an ordinary physical um, or material world. They, are, uh, they say that the world was made by an imperfect uh, spirit. Uh, that imperfect spirit they refer to as uh, probably the God of Abraham. Um, and it's not that he's necessarily evil. He's just imperfect. And, um, and he's trying to, it's trying to do the best that it can, but it's not doing a very good job. The real God, uh, who is good, is distant. He's distant, and so he's not very easily known. In order to get free from this material world, which is bad, and spirit is good, in order to get free from this material world, a person needs to get gnosis, which is a special secret knowledge given only to a few select people. And what this heresy taught is that Jesus was sent by the good uh, spirit, by um, the supreme being, to impart this gnosis, this secret knowledge, to the earth. Hints of this Gnosticism are seen in 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, verses 20 and 21, where it says this, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. That's the word gnosis. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. 
And so Paul is warning them. Putting it all together, just to give you a, a snapshot of what's going on here, Paul, uh, Timothy had to deal with asceticism, um, what's known as an over-realized uh, eschatology, which, which we'll talk about, which says that the resurrection had already taken place and was upsetting uh, these people. Magic, also downplaying the significance of Christ and his work, and then uh, divisiveness. And like I said, we'll get into all of these. And the reason that we'll get into all of these is because they're still present in the church today. And we, as the people of God, need to know how to identify them and fight against them. We need to contend for the truth, as Jude tells us. But before we can fight against them, we need to be able to identify them. And that's what I want to help you do over the next coming weeks, is to help you to identify false teaching. All right? Um, and we're going to be talking about a lot of different things that are out there. One of the things that I want to announce or uh, say at the outset is I want to call your attention to a movement uh, that is gaining ground in Christianity called the New Apostolic Reformation, um, or NAR. Some of you may have heard about that. Others may be thinking, I've never heard of that in my life. This is a movement, like I said, that is gaining ground in Christian circles, and it is actually uh, trying to influence all aspects of Christianity. In this movement, there seems to be a de-emphasis on old revelation— which is the written word of God found in the Bible. And there seems to be a strong emphasis on new revelation. Uh, and by new revelation, we mean personal dreams that people have, uh, personal experiences that people have, um, visions, prophecies that people have. And if you look at some of these, not all of them, but what we, you will notice is that a lot of these dreams, visions, and new revelations from God actually contradict the Bible. They speak ag uh, completely against it. For one example, I was reading uh, this past week about um, uh, in one service, one man was standing up there preaching, and he was started to talk to one of the guys in there and said, hey, uh, your father, I've been talking with your father who passed away, and he wants you to know that he is okay, and that he wants to encourage you in the ministry. The Bible strictly forbids talking with the dead and seeking the dead, but yet this is done in a worship service in the name of, of Jesus. And here's what I want you to know also. When we talk about these groups and these specific churches and even individuals, and you'll notice as we go through this that Paul actually mentions individuals. He calls them out by name to say, stay away from these people. You need to be aware of these people. Our intention, my intention up here, is not to be mean-spirited. My intention is not to put them down to lift myself up. My intention is to warn you. And I was thinking about this. You'll hear in this book uh, of 1 Timothy a lot about the household of God. The elders are to manage their own household well because they are managing the household of God. We are a family. And if you think about this, part of the responsibility of a parent is to warn their children. Is to warn their children about dangers right? Because their friends don't come to them and say, hey, I'm going to be your new friend, and I'm going to lead you into a life of drug abuse and promiscuity, okay? Come with me. No, it's subtle, right? They come in very quietly, and then before you know it, they're on a path to destruction. And so part of our job as leaders in the church is to say, hey, from time to time, we need to stop. Yes, God is loving. We want to talk about the greatness and the glory of God and the love of God, but we also need to warn you to not depart from him. We need to warn you about what is out there because it is very, very dangerous. 
We read in Acts 20 about the enemies that would come from outside and from within. I believe that the new apostolic reformation is an enemy from within. They're not persecuting the church of God. They're using the terminology of the Bible, but I believe in a destructive way. So let me just give you a few examples um, uh, uh, from more examples from Paul's, uh, how Paul warns and how Jesus himself warns, and even the Old Testament prophets warn about this. Um, you don't have to uh, turn there, uh, but I'm going to start in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 31. Here's what God says about his people. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their discretion. My people love to have it so, but what will you do when the end comes? And what he is saying is this. The prophets say whatever they want. The teachers say whatever they want. They don't consult me. They don't consult my word. And the people love it. Oh, this is a new interesting doctrine. I will listen to that and I will embrace that. Paul warned that in the last time, people will have itching ears. They're ready to hear any kind of new form of teaching. The old stuff, that's boring. I've read that a thousand times. Oh, this is new. It's exciting. I like that. God warns about that hundreds of years, even before Paul came on the scene. Jeremiah 27, 15, listen to this. It says this, I have not sent them, declares the Lord, but they are prophesying falsely in my name. Notice that, in his name. They weren't prophesying in the name of Satan. They weren't prophesying in the name of Baal. They weren't prophesying in the name of Buddha. They were prophesying in the name of Yahweh. They were saying, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. And it was completely false to what he was saying. Completely contradictory to what he was saying. But yet they were doing it in his name. And the same goes on today. And this is really what I want to warn you about there are so many things that are done in the name of Jesus. But just because something has a Jesus name slapped on it, a Jesus label slapped on it, it does not mean that it comes from Jesus. You have to be very careful. You have to, you have to discern whether it's from God or not. And how do you do that? You do it by measuring it up against the word of God. Moving into the New Testament, Paul says this in 2 Timothy 3, 13 through 17, while evil, and evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. What did Timothy learn? What was his source of truth? He goes on in verse 15 to say, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. How do we fight against false teaching? We fight by using the established written word of God, which is our standard. We measure it up against. Is this compatible with the Bible. If it's not, we discard it and we say false. Even if it's done in the name of Jesus, even if it's done in the name of God, we discard it as false. And here's the thing. If you've ever listened to these um, proclaimed prophets, they can go on for an hour in their sermons or their, uh, or their speeches without ever mentioning the word of God at all, or make a vague reference to the Bible or a Bible verse, or when they do talk about a Bible verse or passage, it's taken grossly out of context. And it's taken grossly out of context to fit their own theology, their own way of thinking. 
And because they are not stupid, nor is Satan, they have remedied this problem by developing what I believe is their own translation of the Bible, known as the Passion Translation. Um, in this translation, what they do is they change words to fit or add words to fit their own theology. What is their theology? Their theology is one of experience. It's one of newness with God. It's one of, uh, of, of new revelations. It's, it's the impartation. There's a heavy emphasis on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which may include uh, uncontrollable shaking and laughing and convulsing and stuff like that, which you don't see anywhere in the Bible. Let me give you an example of the New Passion Translation <clears throat> and how they uh, distort the Word of God. It's found in Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. Um, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn there. One of, the Bible, one of the translations that we use here is the English Standard Version of the Bible um, because it's a word-for-word -word translation, which means that the original, uh, the people who are translating it from the original Hebrew or Greek into English said, what did the original Greek word, what was it, what did it mean in that context, and then how do we find a word that actually fits into our current context that expresses that meaning of that word at that time, all right? And so the ESV is a word-for-word -word translation. So is something like the New American Standard, the New King James Version, or the King James Version um, also. But here's what it says in the ESV. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Okay, let me read that again. Let the, one who is, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Here's the Passion Translation. And those who are taught the word will receive an impartation from their teacher. A transference of anointing takes place between them. Okay? So the original, if you were to look at the original Greek, it is a command. It is an imperative statement. A present imperative. It is a command that if you've been taught, you need to share with those who have taught you. The Passion Translation makes it a future indicative, a statement of facts. Once again, and those who are taught the word will receive an impartation from their teacher. A transference of anointing has taken place for them. There's no command in here, although that is what it is in the original. The translators of the translator of the New Passion Translation is a guy by the name of Brian Simmons. Um, Simmons describes how the Passion Translation Bible came about and how he received the supernatural impartation. This is a quote from him. He says this, quote, Jesus came into my room, breathed on me, and then took me up to heaven. He breathed on me so that I would do the project. And I felt downloads coming instantly. I received downloads. It was like I got a chip put inside of me. I got a connection inside of me to hear him better, to understand the scriptures better, and hopefully to translate. End quote. By their own admission, the Passion Translation website uh, tells us what their value on actual literal translation is when they say this. Quote, the meaning of a passage took priority over the form of the original words. Sometimes in order to communicate the correct intended meaning, words need to be changed. The Passion Translation is more in favor of prioritizing God's original message over the word's literal meaning. End quote. The correct intended meaning. And my question is, according to who? According to who? 
you who got a download from heaven or according to what the original intention of the article was. Talking about that interview, one more thing regarding uh, Brian uh, uh, Simmons was this. He talks about how his vision in heaven, and when he got to heaven, he was taken into the heavenly library. Now, I don't see that anywhere in the Bible, but he was taken into the heavenly library, and he saw all of these books, and Jesus told him, you can take two books for yourself, but only two. And so he picked one, and then he picked another, and then he saw another. And you can see this interview on, on YouTube. He found another one, and he thought to himself, I want to steal this one. But his thoughts were projected throughout heaven, and he couldn't. And Jesus said, you can't take that one. You can't take that one. And the book that he wanted to take was entitled John 22. Now, if you know your Bibles, there are 21 chapters in the book of John. So this was an added chapter. And I find that very interesting because when John wrote his book, they didn't write it in chapters and verses, right? It was just one long thing, right? So now God is going to say, hey, this was how it was intended all along. No. So anyway, but God says, you can't, but I will invite you back one day. At that point, you can take this book. And it talked about how glorious, how, how the ending will all be glorious and stuff like that. And the church uh, will do this and that. That is what you are dealing with. That is what I want to warn you about regarding this. I want you to be very, very careful about what translation of the Bible you choose because not all translations are created equal and there is an intent behind them. So I want to warn you, but I digressed. Uh, let me give you just some warnings from Jesus, just two quick ones about how clever these people will be with their deceptions. In Matthew 24 verses 4 and 5, Jesus said this, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name. That's very important. They will come in his name. They will use his name and say, this is what Jesus said. I had an encounter with Jesus. I saw Jesus and Jesus said this directly to me. How can you tell me that I'm wrong? And what will they do? Mark 13, 22 and 23 tells us, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders. Whoa, that's what we hear going on. Why? to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Those are the chosen ones of God, those who are in his family. But be on guard, I have told you all these things beforehand. Their deception is going to be so clever that even people in the church who love God will stop and consider maybe this is truth. They're not going to be blatant. They're not going to be, you know, coming out, Jesus is not God, Jesus is not Lord, Satan is God. No, that's not what it's going to be. They're going to use the terminology that we use in a very, very clever way. And I'm going to tell you, if you listen to them, you will hear a lot of truth. And you'll say, yes, I agree with that. I agree with that. I agree with that. But what they do is they insert little points of dishonesty, little points of falsehood. And before you know it, those are the things that take off. And we're way away from the truth. Well, that's enough for that now. That's an introduction. Um, we'll talk more about these false teachers and their message in the weeks to come. Once again, my point is that truth is essential. Truth is essential. Don't say, ah, it's not that important. It is important. But I want to close just quickly with a po on a positive note. I want you to look back at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. This is the introduction and usually we're tempted to gloss over introductions, but I want to tell you that a lot of the introductions, all the introductions that Paul gives in his letters are full of wonderful, beautiful theology. 
and this is no exception. Here's what he says, particularly focused on how he describes God the Father and Jesus the Son. He says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. God is referred to as our Savior. Savior from what? Well, the book of Romans chapter 1 makes it clear that because of our sin, we are all objects of God's wrath. God is pouring out his wrath on us, and rightfully so. We have sinned against him. And once again, we will never understand the seriousness of our sin this side of heaven because we live in it every day. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah, sometimes we're like, oh yeah, that was really bad. But we will never understand the seriousness of our sin until we get to heaven one day. I believe that the first thing we'll do when we see the holiness of God is we will say, how in the world did I make it past my first sin? How in the world did I make it to 40 or 50 or 60? You should have wiped me out right away. I did not deserve this. God must punish sin, and he will do that. God is holy, and what, we're, what God is actually saving us from, if you think about it, is he's saving us from himself because he has to punish sin. It's the just thing to do. But at the same time, he desires to save. So how does he save? He does it by sending Jesus, who is called our hope. Jesus is our hope, and that's beautiful. Hope slips away from us every day, right? Hope slips away from people. Uh, people become hopeless when they lose jobs or income. They become hopeless when they lose social standing. They become hopeless when they, when they lose their health or a relationship or whatever else it may be because they were putting their hope in that. They thought that they were created for this relationship, created for this job, created to make a lot of money. And now it's slipping away and I have no hope. And what they fail to realize is that they were created to be in relationship with God. That's what they were created for. And when they realize that, if they do realize that, and they realize that their sin has separated from them, then they become truly hopeless. And that's where Jesus steps in. And he says, your sins which have separated you from God have been placed on me and I was punished for them. When I hang on that cross... I was forsaken by the Father so that we could both welcome you into our presence one day. Jesus is our great hope and our only hope of salvation. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me because there is no name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. And so I just want to say as we close... If you want to know more about this Jesus, please come and talk to me. Grab me after church. Email me, text me, call me so we can talk about that because Jesus desires to save. And that's what we'll see in this book as well. Let's pray. Father, we help us to tremble at these warnings. Help us to be vigilant. Help us to, to realize that if we're not vigilant, we can be subject to error. Lord, we can be subject to, to teaching a false gospel, something that's not true about Jesus, even though we think that we're teaching something about Jesus. Lord, help us never, ever to dishonor the name of Jesus. Correct us. Guard us through your Holy Spirit in the truth. Your word is truth. And we just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.